Part five of the Lady of the Shroud by Bram Stoker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Part five. Book three. The Coming of the Lady. Rupert's and Ledger's Journal. April third, nineteen o seven. I have waited till now, well into midday, before beginning to set down the details of the strange episode of last night. I have spoken with persons whom I know to be of normal type. I have breakfasted, as usual, heartily, and have every reason to consider myself in perfect health and sanity, so that the record following may be regarded as not only true in substance, but exact as to details. I have investigated and reported on too many cases for the Psychical Research Society to be ignorant of the necessity for absolute accuracy in such matters of even the minutest detail. Yesterday was Tuesday, the second day of April, 1907. I passed a day of interest, with its fair amount of work of varying kinds, and Janet and I lunched together, had a stroll round the gardens after tea, especially examining the site for the new Japanese garden, which we shall call Janet's Garden. We went in Mackintoshes, for the rainy season is in its full, the only sign of its not being a repetition of the deluge being that breaks in the continuance are beginning. They are short at present, but will doubtless enlarge themselves as the season comes towards an end. We dined together at seven. After dinner I had a cigar, and then joined Aunt Janet for an hour in her drawing-room. I left her at half-past ten, when I went to my own room and wrote some letters. At ten minutes past eleven I wound my watch, so I know the time accurately. Having prepared for bed, I drew back the heavy curtain in front of my window, which opens on the marble steps into the Italian garden. I had put out my light before drawing back the curtain, for I wanted to have a look at the scene before turning in. And Janet has always had an old-fashioned idea of the need or propriety, I hardly know which, of keeping windows closed and curtains drawn. I am gradually getting her to leave my room alone in this respect, but at present the change is in its fitful stage, and of course I must not hurry matters or be too persistent, as it would hurt her feelings. This night was one of those under the old regime. It was a delight to look out, for the scene was perfect of its own kind. The long spell of rain, the ceaseless downpour, which had for the time flooded everywhere, had passed and water in abnormal places rather trickled than ran. We were now beginning to be in the sloppy rather than the deluged stage. There was plenty of light to see by, for the moon had begun to show out fitfully through the masses of flying clouds. The uncertain light made weird shadows with the shrubs and statues in the garden. The long straight walk which leads from the marble steps is strewn with fine sand, white from the court strand in the nook at the south of the castle. Tall shrubs of white holly, yew, juniper, cypress, and variegated maple and spirea, which stood at intervals along the walk and its branches, appeared ghost-like in the fitful moonlight. The many vases and statues and urns, always like phantoms in a half-light, were more than ever weird. Last night the moonlight was unusually effective and showed not only the gardens down to the defending wall, but the deep gloom of the great forest trees beyond. And beyond that, again, to where the mountain chain began, the forest running up their silvered slopes flame-like in form, 
deviated here and there by great crags and the outcropping rocky sinews of the vast mountains whilst i was looking at this lovely prospect i thought i saw something white flit like a modified white flash at odd moments from one to another of the shrubs or statues anything which would afford cover from observation at first i was not sure whether i really saw anything or did not this was in itself a little disturbing to me for i have been so long trained to minute observation of facts surrounding me on which often depend not only my own life but the lives of others that i have become accustomed to trust my eyes and anything creating the faintest doubt in this respect is a cause of more or less anxiety to me now however that my attention was called to myself i looked more keenly and in a very short time was satisfied that something was moving something clad in white it was natural enough that my thoughts should tend towards something uncanny the belief that this place is haunted conveyed in a thousand ways of speech and inference and janet's eerie beliefs fortified by her books on occult subjects and of late in our isolation from the rest of the world the subject of daily conversations helped to this end no wonder then that fully awake and with the senses all on edge i waited for some further manifestation from this ghostly visitor as in my mind i took it to be it must surely be a ghost or spiritual manifestation of some kind which moved in this silent way in order to see and hear better i softly moved back the folding drill opened the french window and stepped out barefooted and pajama clad as i was on the marble terrace how cold the wet marble was how heavy smelled the rain-laden garden it was as though the night and the damp and even the moonlight were drawing the aroma from all the flowers that blossomed the whole night seemed to exhale heavy half intoxicating odors i stood at the head of the marble steps and all immediately before me was ghostly in the extreme the white marble terrace and steps the white walks of port sand glistening under the fitful moonlight the shrubs of white or pale green or yellow all looking dim and ghostly in the glamorous light the white statues and vases and amongst them still flitting noiselessly that mysterious elusive figure which i could not say was based on fact or imagination i held my breath listening intently for every sound but sound there was none save those of the night and its denizens owls hooted in the forest bats taking advantage of the cessation of the rain flitted about silently like shadows in the air but there was no more sign of moving ghost or phantom or whatever i had seen might have been if indeed there had been anything except imagination so after waiting a while i returned to my room closed the window drew the grill across again and dragged the heavy curtain before the opening then having extinguished my candles went to bed in the dark in a few minutes i must have been asleep what was that i almost heard the words of my own thought as i sat up in bed wide awake to memory rather than present hearing the disturbing sound had seemed like the faint tapping at the window for some seconds i listened mechanically but intently with bated breath and that quick beating of the heart which in a timorous person speaks for fear and for expectation in another in the stillness the sound came again this time a very very faint but unmistakable tapping at the glass door i jumped up drew back the curtain 
and for a moment stood appalled there outside on the balcony in the now brilliant moonlight stood a woman wrapped in white grave clothes saturated with water which dripped on the marble floor making a pool which trickled slowly down the wet steps attitude and dress and circumstance all conveyed the idea that though she moved and spoke she was not quick but dead she was young and very beautiful but pale like the grey pallor of death through the still white of her face which made her look as cold as the wet marble she stood on her dark eyes seemed to gleam with a strange but enticing lustre even in the unsearching moonlight which is after all rather deceptive than illuminative i could not but notice one rare quality of her eyes each had some quality of refraction which made it look as though it contained a star at every movement she made the stars exhibited new beauties of more rare and radiant force she looked at me imploringly as the heavy curtain rolled back and in eloquent gestures implored me to admit her instinctively i obeyed i rolled back the steel grill and threw open the french window i noticed that she shivered and trembled as the glass door fell open indeed she seemed so overcome with cold as to seem almost unable to move in the sense of her helplessness all idea of the strangeness of the situation entirely disappeared it was not as if my first idea of death taken from her sermons was negatived it was simply that i did not think of it at all i was content to accept things as they were she was a woman and in some dreadful trouble that was enough i am thus particular about my own emotions as i may have to refer to them again in matters of comprehension or comparison the whole thing is so vastly strange and abnormal that the least thing may afterwards give some guiding light or clue to something otherwise not understandable i have always found that in recondite matters first impressions are of more real value than later conclusions we humans place far too little reliance on instinct as against reason and yet instinct is the great gift of nature to all animals for their protection and the fulfilment of their functions generally when i stepped out on the balcony not thinking of my costume i found that the woman was benumbed and hardly able to move even when i asked her to enter and supplemented my words with gestures in case she should not understand my language she stood stock still only rocking slightly to and fro as though she had just strength enough left to balance herself on her feet i was afraid from the condition in which she was that she might drop down dead at any moment so i took her by the hand to lead her in but she seemed too weak to even make the attempt when i pulled her slightly forward thinking to help her she tottered and would have fallen had i not caught her in my arms then half lifting her i moved her forwards her feet relieved of her weight now seemed able to make the necessary effort and so i almost carrying her we moved into the room she was at the very end of her strength i had to lift her over the sill in obedience to her motion i closed the french window and bolted it i supposed the warmth of the room though cool it was warmer than the damp air without affected her quickly for on the instant she seemed to begin to recover herself in a few seconds as though she had reacquired her strength she herself pulled the heavy curtain across the window this left us in darkness 
through which I heard her say in English, Light, get a light. I found matches and at once lit a candle. As the wick flared, she moved over to the door of the room and tried if the lock and bolt were fastened. Satisfied as to this, she moved towards me, her wet shroud leaving a trail of moisture on the green carpet. By this time, the wax of the candle had melted sufficiently to let me see her clearly. She was shaking and quivering as though in an ague. She drew the wet shroud around her piteously. Instinctively, I spoke. Can I do anything for you? She answered, still in English, and in a voice of thrilling, almost piercing sweetness, which seemed somehow to go straight to my heart and affected me strangely. Give me warmth. I hurried to the fireplace. It was empty. There was no fire laid. I turned to her and said, Wait just a few minutes here. I shall call someone and get help and fire. Her voice seemed to ring with intensity as she answered without a pause. No, no, rather would I be. Here she hesitated for an instant, but as she caught sight of her cerements, went on hurriedly. As I am, I trust you, not others. And you must not betray my trust. Almost instantly she fell into a frightful fit of shivering, drawing again her death clothes close to her, so piteously that it wrung my heart. I suppose I am a practical man. At any rate, I am accustomed to action. I took from its place beside my bed a thick Jaeger dressing gown of dark brown. It was, of course, of extra length, and held it out to her as I said, Put that on. It is the only warm thing here which would be suitable. Stay. You must remove that wet, wet, I stumbled about for a word that would not be offensive, that frock, dress, costume, whatever it is. I pointed to where in the corner of the room stood a chintz-covered folding screen, which fences in my cold sponge bath, which is laid ready for me overnight, as I am an early riser. She bowed gravely, and taking the dressing gown in a long, white, finely shaped hand, bore it behind the screen. There was a slight rustle, and then a hollow flop as the wet garment fell on the floor. More rustling and rubbing, and a minute later she emerged, wrapped from head to foot in the long Jaeger garment, which trailed on the floor behind her, though she was a tall woman. She was still shivering painfully, however. I took a flask of brandy and a glass from a cupboard and offered her some, but with a motion of her hand she refused it, though she moaned grievously. Oh, I am so cold, so cold. Her teeth were shattering. I was pained at her sad condition and said despairingly, for I was at my wit's end to know what to do, tell me anything that I can do to help you and I will do it. I may not call help. There is no fire, nothing to make it with. You will not take some brandy. What on earth can I do to give you warmth? Her answer certainly surprised me when it came, though it was practical enough so practical that I should not have dared to say it. She looked me straight in the face for a few seconds before speaking. Then, with an air of girlish innocence which disarmed suspicion and convinced me at once of her simple faith, she said in a voice that at once thrilled me and evoked all my pity, Let me rest for a while and cover me up with rugs. That may give me warmth. I am dying of cold, and I have a deadly fear upon me, a deadly fear. Sit by me. And let me hold your hand. You are big and strong, and you look brave. It will reassure me. 
i am not myself a coward but to-night fear has got me by the throat i can hardly breathe do let me stay till i am warm if you only knew what i have gone through and have to go through still i am sure you would pity me and help me to say that i was astonished would be a mild description of my feelings i was not shocked the life which i had led was not one which makes for prudery to travel in strange places amongst strange peoples with strange views of their own is to have odd experiences and peculiar adventures now and again a man without human passions is not the type necessary for an adventurous life such as i myself have had but even a man of passions and experiences can when he respects a woman be shocked even prudish where his own opinion of her is concerned such must bring to her guarding any generosity which she has and any self-restraint also even should she place herself in a doubtful position her honour calls to his honour this is a call which may not be must not be unanswered even passion must pause for at least a while at sound of such a trumpet call this woman i did respect much respect her youth and beauty her manifest ignorance of evil her superb disdain of convention which could only come through hereditary dignity her terrible fear and suffering for there must be more in her unhappy condition than meets the eye would all demand respect even if one did not hasten to yield it nevertheless i thought it necessary to enter a protest against her embarrassing suggestion i certainly did feel a fool in making it also a cad i can truly say it was made only for her good and out of the best of me such as i am i felt impossibly awkward and stuttered and stumbled before i spoke but surely the the confidences <laughs> your being here alone at night mrs grundy the convention the she interrupted me with an incomparable dignity a dignity which had the effect of shutting me up like a clasp-knife and making me feel a decided inferior and a poor show at that there was such a gracious simplicity and honesty in it too such self-respecting knowledge of herself and her position that i could be neither angry nor hurt i could only feel ashamed of myself and of my own littleness of mind and morals she seemed in her icy coldness now spiritual as well as bodily like an incarnate figure of pride as she answered what are convenances or conventions to me if you only knew where i have come from the existence if it can be called so which i have had the loneliness the horror and besides it is for me to make conventions not to yield my personal freedom of action to them even as i am even here and in this garb i am above convention convenances do not trouble me or hamper me that at least i have won by what i have gone through even if it had never come to me through any other way let me stay she said the last words in spite of all her pride appealingly but still there was a note of high pride in all this in all she said and did in her attitude and movement in the tones of her voice in the loftiness of her carriage and the steadfast look of her open starlit eyes altogether there was something so rarely lofty in herself and all that clad her that face to face with it and with her my feeble attempt at moral precaution seemed puny ridiculous and out of place without a word in the doing 
I took from an old chiffonier chest an armful of blankets, several of which I threw over her as she lay, for in the meantime, having replaced the coverlet, she had lain down at length on the bed. I took a chair and sat down beside her. When she stretched out her hand from beneath the pile of wraps, I took it in mine, saying, Get warm and rest. Sleep if you can. You need not fear. I shall guard you with my life. She looked at me gratefully, her starry eyes taking a new light, more full of illumination than was afforded by the wax candle, which was shaded from her by my body. She was horribly cold, and her teeth chattered so violently that I feared lest she should have incurred some dangerous evil from her wetting and the cold that followed it. I felt, however, so awkward that I could find no words to express my fears. Moreover, I hardly dared say anything at all regarding herself after the haughty way in which she had received my well-meant protest. Manifestly, I was but to her as a sort of refuge and provider of heat, altogether impersonal, and not to be regarded in any degree as an individual. In these humiliating circumstances, what could I do but sit quiet and wait developments? Little by little, the fierce chattering of her teeth began to abate as the warmth of her surroundings stole through her. I also felt, even in this strangely awakening position, the influence of the quiet, and sleep began to steal over me. Several times I tried to fend it off, but as I could not make any overt movement without alarming my strange and beautiful companion, I had to yield myself to drowsiness. I was still in such an overwhelming stupor of surprise that I could not even think freely. There was nothing for me but to control myself and wait. Before I could well fix my thoughts, I was asleep. I was recalled to consciousness by hearing, even through the pall of sleep that bound me, the crowing of a cock in some of the out-offices of the castle. At the same instant, the figure, lying deathly still but for the gentle heaving of her bosom, began to struggle wildly. The sound had won through the gates of her sleep also. With a swift, gliding motion, she slipped from the bed to the floor, saying in a fierce whisper as she pulled herself up to her full height, Let me out. I must go. I must go. By this time I was fully awake, and the whole position of things came to me in an instant which I shall never, can never, forget. The dim light of the candle now nearly burned down to the socket, all the dimmer from the fact that the first grey gleam of morning was stealing in round the edges of the heavy curtain. The tall, slim figure in the brown dressing-gown, whose over-length trailed on the floor, the black hair showing glossy in the light, and increasing by contrast the marble whiteness of the face, in which the black eyes sent through their stars fiery gleams. She appeared quite in a frenzy of haste. Her eagerness was simply irresistible. I was so stupefied with amazement as well as with sleep that I did not attempt to stop her, but began instinctively to help her by furthering her wishes. As she ran behind the screen, and, as far as sound could inform me, began frantically to disrobe herself of her warm dressing-gown, and to don again the ice-cold wet shroud, I pulled back the curtain from the window, and drew the bolt of the glass door. As I did so, she was already behind me, shivering. As I threw open the door, she glided out with a swift, silent movement, but trembling in an agonized way. As she passed me, she murmured in a low voice, which was almost lost in the chattering of her teeth, Oh, thank you, thank you a thousand times, and I must go, I must, I must, I shall come again, and try to show my gratitude. 
do not condemn me as ungrateful till then and she was gone i watched her pass the length of the white path flitting from shrub to shrub a statue as she had come in the cold grey light of the undeveloped dawn she seemed even more ghostly than she had done in the black shadow of the night when she disappeared from sight in the shadow of the wood i stood on the terrace for a long time watching in case i should be afforded another glimpse of her for there was now no doubt in my mind that she had for me some strange attraction i felt even then that the look in those glorious starry eyes would be with me always so long as i might live there was some fascination which went deeper than my eyes or my flesh or my heart down deep into the very depths of my soul my mind was all in a whirl so that i could hardly think coherently it was like a dream the reality seemed far away it was not possible to doubt that the phantom figure which had been so close to me during the dark hours of the night was actual flesh and blood Yet she was so cold, so cold. Altogether, I could not fix my mind to either proposition, that it was a living woman who had held my hand, or a dead body, reanimated for the time or the occasion in some strange manner. The difficulty was too great for me to make up my mind upon it, even had I wanted to. But in any case, I did not want to. This would no doubt come in time, but till then i wished to dream on as any one does in a dream which can still be blissful though there be pauses of pain or ghastliness or doubt or terror so i closed the window and drew the curtain again feeling for the first time the cold in which i had stood on the wet marble floor of the terrace when my bare feet began to get warm on the soft carpet to get rid of the chill feeling i got into the bed on which she had lain and as the warmth restored me tried to think coherently for a short while i was going over the facts of the night or what seemed as facts to my remembrance but as i continued to think the possibilities of any result seemed to get less and i found myself vainly trying to reconcile with the logic of life the grim episode of the night the effort proved to be too much for such concentration as was left to me moreover interrupted sleep was claimant and would not be denied what i dreamt of if i dreamt at all i know not i only know that i was ready for waking when the time came it came with a violent knocking at my door i sprang from bed fully awake in a second drew the bolt and slipped back to bed with a hurried may i come in and janet entered she seemed relieved when she saw me and gave without my asking an explanation of her perturbation oh laddie I had been so uneasy about you all the night. I had dreams and visions and all sorts of uncanny fancies. I fear that she was by now drawing back the curtain, and as her eyes took in the marks of wet all over the floor, the current of her thoughts changed. Why, lady, whatever have you been doing with your faith? Oh, the mess you made! Tis sinful to give sick trouble and waste. And so she went on. I was glad to hear the tirade which was only what a good housewife outraged in her sentiments of order would have made i listened in patience with pleasure when i thought of what she would have thought and said had she known the real facts i was well pleased to have got off so easily rupert's journal continued april tenth nineteen o seven for some days after what i call the episode 
I was in a strange condition of mind. I did not take anyone, not even Aunt Janet, into confidence. Even she, dear and open-hearted and liberal-minded as she is, might not have understood well enough to be just and tolerant, and I did not care to hear any adverse comment on my strange visitor. Somehow I could not bear the thought of anyone finding fault with her or in her, though, strangely enough, I was eternally defending her to myself, for, despite my wishes, embarrassing thoughts would come again and again and again in all sorts and variants of queries difficult to answer. I found myself defending her sometimes as a woman hard-pressed by spiritual fear and physical suffering, sometimes as not being amenable to laws that govern the living. Indeed, I could not make up my mind whether I looked on her as a living human being or as one with some strange existence in another world, and having only a chance foothold in our own. In such doubt, imagination began to work, and thoughts of evil, of danger, of doubt, even of fear, began to crowd on me with such persistence and in such varied forms that I found my instinct of reticence growing into a settled purpose. The value of this instinctive precaution was promptly shown by Aunt Janet's state of mind, with consequent revelation of it. She became full of gloomy prognostications and what I thought were morbid fears. For the first time in my life I discovered that Aunt Janet had nerves. I had long had a secret belief that she was gifted to some degree at any rate with second sight, which quality, or whatever it is, skilled in the powers, if not the law, of superstition, manages to keep it stretched not only the mind of its immediate pathic, but of others relevant to it. Perhaps this natural quality had received a fresh impetus from the arrival of some cases of her books sent on by Sir Colin. She appeared to read and reread these works, which were chiefly on occult subjects, day and night, except when she was imparting to me choice excerpts of the most baleful and fearsome kind. Indeed, before a week was over, I found myself to be an expert in the history of the cult, as well as in its manifestations, which latter I had been versed in for a good many years. The result of all this was that it set me brooding. Such, at least, I gathered was the fact when Aunt Janet took me to task for it. She always speaks out according to her convictions, so that her thinking I brooded was to me a proof that I did, and after a personal examination I came, reluctantly, to the conclusion that she was right, so far at any rate as my outer conduct was concerned. The state of mind I was in, however, kept me from making any acknowledgment of it, the real cause of my keeping so much to myself and of being so distrait. And so I went on torturing myself as before with introspective questioning, and she, with her mind set on my actions and endeavouring to find a cause for them, continued and expounded her beliefs and fears. Her nightly chats with me when we were alone after dinner, for I had come to avoid her questioning at other times, kept my imagination at high pressure. Despite myself, I could not but find new cause for concern in the perennial founts of her superstition. I had thought, years ago, that I had then sounded the depths of this branch of psychicism. But this new phase of thought, founded on the really deep hold which the existence of my beautiful visitor and her sad and dreadful circumstances had taken upon me, brought me a new concern in the matter of self-importance. I came to think that I must reconstruct my self-values and begin a fresh understanding of ethical beliefs. Do what I would, 
my mind would keep turning on the uncanny subjects brought before it. I began to apply them one by one to my own late experience, and unconsciously to try to fit them in turn to the present case. The effect of this brooding was that I was, despite my own will, struck by the similarity of circumstances bearing on my visitor, and the conditions apportioned by tradition and superstition to such strange survivals from earlier ages as these partial existences which are rather undead than living, still walking the earth, though claimed by the world of the dead. Amongst them are the vampire or the werewolf. To this class also might belong, in a measure, the doppelganger, one of whose dual existences commonly belongs to the actual world around it. So, too, the denizens of the world of astralism. In any of these named worlds, there is a material presence, which must be created, if only for a single or periodic purpose. It matters not whether a material presence already created can be receptive of a disembodied soul, or a soul unattached can have a body built up for it or around it, or, again, whether the body of a dead person can be made seeming quick through some diabolic influence manifested in the present, or an inheritance or result of some baleful use of malefic power in the past. The result is the same in each case, though the ways be widely different. A soul and a body which are not in unity, but brought together for strange purposes, through stranger means, and by powers still more strange. Through much thought and a process of exclusions, the eerie form which seemed to be most in correspondence with my adventure, and most suitable to my fascinating visitor, appeared to be the vampire. Doppelganger, astral creations, and all such like did not comply with the conditions of my net experience. The werewolf is but a variant of the vampire, and so needed not to be classed or examined at all. Then it was that, thus focused, the Lady of the Shroud, for so I came to hold her in my mind, began to assume a new force. Aunt Janet's library afforded me clues which I followed with avidity. In my secret heart I hated the quest, and did not wish to go on with it. But in this I was not my own master. Do what I would, brush away doubts never so often, new doubts and imaginings came in their stead. The circumstance almost repeated the parable of the seven devils, who took the place of the exorcised one. Doubts I could stand, imaginings I could stand, but doubts and imaginings together made a force so fell that I was driven to accept any reading of the mystery which might, presumably, afford a foothold for satisfying thought. And so I came to accept tentatively the vampire theory, accepted at least so far as to examine it as judicially as was given me to do. As the days wore on, so the conviction grew. The more I read on the subject, the more directly the evidences pointed towards this view. The more I thought, the more obstinate became the conviction. I ransacked Aunt Janet's volumes again and again to find anything to the contrary, but in vain. Again, no matter how obstinate were my convictions at any given time, unsettlement came with fresh thinking over the argument, so that I was kept in a harassing state of uncertainty. Briefly, the evidence in favor of accord between the facts of the case and the vampire theory were her coming was at night, the time the vampire is, according to the theory, free to move at will. She wore her shroud, 
a necessity of coming fresh from grave or tomb for there is nothing occult about clothing which is not subject to astral or other influences she had to be helped into my room in strict accordance with what one sceptical critic of occultism has called the vampire etiquette she made violent haste in getting away at cockcrow she seemed preternaturally cold her sleep was almost abnormal in intensity and yet the sound of the cockcrowing came through it these things showed her to be subject to some laws though not in exact accord within those which govern human beings under the stress of such circumstances as she must have gone through her vitality seemed more than human the quality of vitality which could outlive ordinary burial again such purpose as she had shown in donning under stress of some compelling direction her ice-cold wet shroud and wrapped in it going out again into the night was hardly normal for a woman but if so and if she was indeed a vampire might not whatever it may be that holds such beings in thrall be by some means or other exorcised to find the means must be my next task i am actually pining to see her again never before have i been stirred to my depths by any one come it from heaven or hell from the earth or the grave it does not matter i shall make it my task to win her back to life and peace if she be indeed a vampire the task may be hard and long if she be not so and if it be merely that circumstances have so gathered round her as to produce that impression the task may be simpler and the result more sweet no not more sweet for what can be more sweet than to restore the lost or seemingly lost soul of the woman you love there the truth is out at last i suppose that i have fallen in love with her if so it is too late for me to fight against it i can only wait with what patience i can till i see her again but to that end i can do nothing i know absolutely nothing about her not even her name patience rupert's journal continued april sixteenth nineteen o seven the only relief I have had from the haunting anxiety regarding the Lady of the Shroud has been in the troubled state of my adopted country. There has evidently been something up which I have not been allowed to know. The mountaineers are troubled and restless, are wandering about singly and in parties, and holding meetings in strange places. This is what I gather used to be in the old days when intrigues were on foot with Turks, Greeks, Austrians, Italians, Russians, this concerns me vitally for my mind has long been made up to share the fortunes of the land of the blue mountains for good or ill i mean to stay here j'y suis j'y reste i share henceforth the lot of the blue mountaineers and not turkey nor greece nor austria nor italy nor russia no not france nor germany either not man nor god nor devil shall drive me from my purpose with these patriots i throw in my lot my only difficulty seemed at first to be with the men themselves they are so proud that at the beginning i feared they would not even accord me the honour of being one with them however things always move on somehow no matter what difficulties there be at the beginning never mind when one looks back at an accomplished fact the beginning is not to be seen and if it were it would not matter it is not of any account anyhow 
I heard that there was going to be a great meeting near here yesterday afternoon, and I attended it. I think it was a success. If such is any proof, I felt elated as well as satisfied when I came away. And Janet's second sight on the subject was comforting, though grim, and in a measure disconcerting. When I was saying good night, she asked me to bend down my head. As I did so, she laid her hands on it and passed them all over it. I heard her say to herself, Strange, there is nothing here. Here I could have sworn I saw it. I asked her to explain, but she would not. For once she was a little obstinate and refused point-blank to even talk of the subject. She was not worried nor unhappy, so I had no cause for concern. I said nothing, but I shall wait and see. Most mysteries become plain or disappear altogether in time. But about the meeting, lest I forget. When I joined the mountaineers who had assembled, I really think they were glad to see me, though some of them seemed adverse and others did not seem over well satisfied. However, absolute unity is very seldom to be found. Indeed, it is almost impossible, and in a free community is not altogether to be desired. When it is apparent, the gathering lacks that sense of individual feeling which makes for the real consensus of opinion, which is the real unity of purpose. The meeting was at first, therefore, a little cold and distant, but presently it began to thaw, and after some fiery harangues, I was asked to speak. Happily, I had begun to learn the Balkan language as soon as ever Uncle Roger's wishes had been made known to me, and as I have some facility of tongues and a great deal of experience, I soon began to know something of it. Indeed, when I had been here a few weeks, with opportunity of speaking daily with the people themselves, and learned to understand the intonations and vocal inflections, I felt quite easy in speaking it. I understood every word which had up to then been spoken at the meeting, and when I spoke myself I felt that they understood. That is an experience which every speaker has in a certain way and up to a certain point. He knows by some kind of instinct if his hearers are with him. If they respond, they must certainly have understood. Last night this was marked. I felt it every instant I was talking and when I came to realize that the men were in strict accord with my general views, I took them into confidence with regard to my own personal purpose. It was the beginning of a mutual trust. So, for peroration, I told them that I had come to the conclusion that what they wanted most for their own protection and the security and consolidation of their nation was arms, arms of the very latest pattern, here they interrupted me with wild cheers, which so strung me up that I went farther than I intended and made a daring venture. I, I repeated, the security and consolidation of your country, of our country, for I have come to live amongst you. Here is my home whilst I live. I am with you, heart and soul. I shall live with you, fight shoulder to shoulder with you, and if need be, shall die with you. Here the shouting was terrific and the younger men raised their guns to fire a salute in Blue Mountain fashion. But on the instant, the Vladika held up his hands. Note, Vladika, a high functionary in the land of the Blue Mountains. He is a sort of official descendant of the old prince-bishops, who used at one time to govern the state. In process of time, the system has changed, but the function, shorn of its personal dominance, remains. The nation is at present governed by the council. 
the church which is of course the eastern church is represented by the archbishop who controls the whole spiritual functions and organization the connecting link between them they being quite independent organizations is the vladika who is ex officio a member of the national council by custom he does not vote but is looked on as an independent adviser who is in the confidence of both sides of national control return to text on the instant the vladika held up his hands and motioned them to desist in the immediate silence he spoke sharply at first but later ascending to a high pitch of single-minded lofty eloquence his words rang in my ears long after the meeting was over and other thoughts had come between them and the present silence he thundered make no echoes in the forest or through the hills at this dire time of stress and threatened danger to our land bethink ye of this meeting held here in secret in order that no whisper of it may be heard afar have ye all brave men of the blue mountains come hither through the forest like shadows that some of you thoughtless may enlighten your enemies as to our secret purpose the thunder of your guns would doubtless sound well in the ears of those who wish us ill and try to work us wrong fellow countrymen know ye not that the turk is awake once more for our harming the bureau of spies has risen from the torpor which came on it when the purpose against our tuta roused our mountains to such anger that the frontiers blazed with passion and were swept with fire and sword moreover there is a traitor somewhere in the land or else incautious carelessness has served the same base purpose something of our needs our doing whose secret we have tried to hide has gone out the myrmidons of the turk are close on our borders and it may be that some of them have passed our guards and are amidst us unknown so it behooves us doubly to be discreet believe me that i share with you my brothers our love for the gallant englishman who has come amongst us to share our sorrows and ambitions and i trust it may be our joys we are all united in the wish to do him honour though not in the way by which danger might be carried on the wings of love my brothers our newest brother comes to us from the great nation which amongst the nations has been our only friend and which has ere now helped us in our direst need that mighty britain whose hand has ever been raised in the cause of freedom we of the blue mountains know her best as she stands with sword in hand face to face with our foes and this her son and now our brother brings further to our need the hand of a giant and the heart of a lion later on when danger does not ring us round when silence is no longer our outer guard we shall bid him welcome in true fashion of our land but till then he will believe for he is great-hearted that our love and thanks and welcome are not to be measured by sound when the time comes then shall be sound in his honour not of rifles alone but bells and cannon and the mighty voice of a free people shouting as one but now we must be wise and silent for the turk is once again at our gates alas the cause of his former coming may not be for she whose beauty and nobility and whose place in our nation and in our hearts 
tempted him to fraud and violence, is not with us to share even our anxiety. Here his voice broke, and there arose from all a deep wailing sound, which rose and rose till the woods around us seemed broken by a mighty and long-sustained sob. The orator saw that his purpose was accomplished, and with a short sentence finished his harangue. But the need of our nation still remains. Then, with an eloquent gesture to me to proceed, he merged in the crowd and disappeared. How could I even attempt to follow such a speaker with any hope of success? I simply told them what I had already done in the way of help, saying, as you needed arms, I have got them. My agent sends me word through the code between us that he has procured for me, for us, 50,000 of the newest pattern rifles, the French English Malgrim, which has surpassed all others, and sufficient ammunition to last for a year of war. The first section is in hand and will soon be ready for consignment. There are other war materials, too, which, when they arrive, will enable every man and woman, even the children, of our land to take a part in its defense should such be needed my brothers i am with you in all things for good or ill it made me very proud to hear the mighty shout which arose i had felt exalted before but now this personal development almost unmanned me i was glad of the long-sustained applause to recover my self-control i was quite satisfied that the meeting did not want to hear any other speaker for they began to melt away without any formal notification having been given. I doubt if there will be another meeting soon again. The weather has begun to break, and we are in for another spell of rain. It is disagreeable, of course, but it has its own charm. It was during a spell of wet weather that the Lady of the Shroud came to me. Perhaps the rain will bring her again. I hope so, with all my soul. End of Part 5 Recording by Thomas Copeland